Hello and welcome to the Deep State Consciousness podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Graham. Michael is the author of this book, From Guru to God, An Experience of the Ultimate Truth. And further the subtitle reads, 28 years of disciplined practice with India's most respected gurus leads to a surprising conclusion. And it's those 28 years and that surprising conclusion we're going to be talking about today. So Michael, thank you for being here and good morning. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you. I think, I think we need to start at the start and find out what it was about you as a, a teenager and a young man in Australia that set you apart and, and took you on this quest for enlightenment or however you would describe it over to India back in the 1960s when it really wasn't a, a common thing to do that. Were you particularly uh, philosophical as a, a child or? Uh, not particularly. My father was. I started off in an unusual way with a father who was a, a doctor and a psychiatrist. He was a closet mystic of sorts. He had a huge library. And uh, in my late teens, my brain woke up and I started to think about life. Uh, a lot of my friends uh, knew exactly what they wanted to do, go to university, become a doctor, a lawyer, or go back on the land or as a farmer or something like that. But I was very unsure. And that, that uh, lack of clarity of direction disquieted me. It bothered me considerably. And though my father's mantra was, Michael, whatever you want to do, I'm right behind you. And he never finished with that idea, which was terrific. Uh, I picked, down a, picked out a few books out of his huge library on Buddhism, Hinduism, Vedanta, and uh, that grabbed my attention. They made rather extravagant claims, you know, the claim for enlightenment, a transformed life, a life free of suffering. I thought, my goodness, where do I sign? Yeah. So that got me going. I, all of a sudden, I was clear as day about what I wanted to do. I uh, bought a motorcycle, jumped on a ship, sailed to Sri Lanka, rode around Sri Lanka and up through India looking for this guru who was, uh, recommend, came to me on very strong recommendation, whose very uh, touch or presence would transform a person's life. So that kicked me off in a very clear direction. Okay, and right near the, the start of that experience, you had these quite powerful, trans well, I don't know if you'd say they're transformative or not, but powerful mystical experiences near the beginning. <laughs> the guru was Swami Muktananda, wasn't it? That's correct. And it was before I met him, actually. Right. That's right. Uh, that perhaps at the age of 18 or so. And, and at that time, I'd been reading prolifically about yoga, practicing Hatha Yoga, trying to meditate unsuccessfully. Uh, but I was intrigued, even by Jay Krishnamurti, uh, these people were having a big influence on me at that time. And uh, I don't know whether it was their influence or whether that was the context of this experience. But one day I went out onto the back veranda of our, our home in Melbourne. It was dusk. It was, it was winter. And I saw this bird fly behind the silhouette of a, a leafless tree. And, and for some reason, it was a very beautiful moment. And with that apprehension of beauty, an extraordinary thing happened. I completely disappeared. And I was overcome by an unalloyed ecstasy. But the extraordinary thing was, is that the, the distinguishing feature of this uh, experience was complete annihilation of self, if you like. And I can't technically say that it was an experience because an experience requires someone to experience something. 
and the someone had vanished. And of course, the moment I returned to realize I was having the experience, it could not coexist with my return, with a self to experience something. So I took that upon, it was staggering. I took that upon reflection as the ultimate truth, hmm. completely non-conceivable, beyond space and time, beyond matter, and uh, beyond all form of rational uh, explanation. And yet, uh, it was it was Godhead before God is named, if you like, before all form. So I, I was fascinated. I was delighted, of course. And as with so many of these remarkable experiences, I expected to uh, some sort of a transformation to follow, but it didn't. But it left me with an extraordinary memory and a, a remarkable penetration of what I thought, what I believed at that time was the ultimate truth. So did the experience have a sense of quality to it, of, of a sense of infinite love, as the mystics write about, or beauty or anything like that? Well, it was unalloyed wonder and beauty. Uh, and ecstasy, but its most profound distinguishing feature is that I didn't exist. Now, how can that be? See, that's it, not rational. And yet, that's that was the best way of describing it. It can't be described save for fingers pointing towards the moon, if you like, you know. Sure. So, what, you're going to India, knowing that this is for real, that this isn't some mm. thing the gurus are making up, that these kind of transcendent mm. states—they're they're mm. real. Okay. Um, oh, so absolutely. What What was your expectation then of what you would find or achieve or go on to do um, in India? Did you think that you would re-enter that state permanently at some point? Was it like a, a five-year plan of attaining enlightenment and then you would live in this state of blissful wonder and bring it to the world? What did you have a sense of of, of the journey you would take or an expectation of it? Oh, indeed. And, and I believe that the states of change and transformation, a radical change in the quality and texture of my life would be a sustainable thing. And it would be transformative. And it would be everything that I was looking for. And of course, I read prolifically on Vedanta and this sort of thing. And uh, the world was not fascinating to me at this point. Uh, so I was really ready to go and expecting the very best. And particularly uh, from Muktananda, because during my practices in Melbourne, though I was an accomplished Hatha Yogi, probably because I was a, I'd been a good gymnast, that was a bit of a cinch for me. Meditation was certainly <laughs> very difficult. And uh, I believe this would have been central to a personal transformation. I knew that Muktananda, uh, he'd come on strong recommendation as being particularly powerful. His touch, presence, being able to transform a person. So that's why I went to him to have all that fixed and set myself well on the path to uh, enlightenment and transformation, if you like. And you did have another transformative experience through the torch of Muktananda, didn't you? Yes, I did. I wasn't transformative. <laughs> but it, sure. it, it, it was startling and yeah. oh, totally engaging. I mean, can you imagine? Anyway, Muktananda was a remarkable being, no doubt. Vitally charismatic, handsome 60-year-old. And uh, he was renowned for awakening the Kundalini Shakti. And I received his touch one day. I was sort of sitting bolt upright trying to meditate on a real tiger skin, mind you, and uh, unsuccessfully trying to meditate, getting progressively more knotted up. And uh, just prior to this, actually, I, I complained to him. I, I had an audience with him. He was held in the highest regard, as all gurus are in India. 
and uh, he didn't speak any English, perhaps 30, 40 words maybe. And I told him I'd come all the way to India to have my uh, meditation fixed and set myself properly on the path. And through a translator, he said, don't worry, everything will be fine. And of course, I was in there all alone in this meditation room and uh, trying to meditate. And all of a sudden, I was startled. You know, oh! And uh, Muktananda was standing over me. He took his hand, ran, ran his hand across my forehead, across both cheeks, turned on his heels and left. Took all of three or four seconds. Well, I'd been touched by the guru and that had really grabbed my attention. Wow, that's terrific. But nothing happened. But a, perhaps a week later, something began. Again, sitting for meditation, my body started to spontaneously gyrate in a circular motion. I thought, hello, hello, this is interesting. <laughs> Up until this point, if ever my body moved, twas I that moved it. And this began, and then, and then uh, with each day that passed, it became more and more and more vigorous. It wasn't affecting my mind at all. In fact, I was smiling, I was fascinated, and I was delighted, of course, because I knew that this was the awakening of which Muktananda was renowned to be able to bring about. And, uh, oh, wow, this is, wow, I'm on the way here. Now, it's important to say there was no suggestion, hysteria, or uh, hypnosis involved whatsoever. I had a very uh, careful uh, mentality regards this. I, I, I didn't want to add anything, didn't want to subtract anything. I just completely surrendered and watched keenly as it happened. Now, another very interesting point was that, a, again, another week later, I suppose, a Canadian chap turned up. And by the way, I was the first Australian devotee of Muktananda. This was 1969. And it was a bit of a, an, an international group. Uh, we, there was a, an Australian, American, and an Englishman and now a Canadian turned up. And he said, Michael, let, let's go and meditate together. So we went off into this meditation room together, all alone, the two of us again. And as we sat down, he said the 23rd Psalm. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Very beautiful thing. And I remembered that from my school days. And the beauty of that Psalm just struck me. And as that, the beauty of the Psalm hit me, what had awakened in me a week earlier exploded into 10 times its, its power. And I was flung to the floor, started crawling my way across the floor, roaring like a lion. And uh, I was amazed, tantalized, fascinated. At the same time, I was careful. Whoa, I'm not going to put myself into this. I wasn't alarmed, worried, because it was supposed to be the awakening of the divine energy of the Kundalini Shakti, the intelligence of the light force itself. It was going to transform me, expunge everything that separated me from God, all the impressions, the samskaras, all the fancy words they had for this sort of thing. At the same time, I was aware that the Canadian was completely freaked out. He was saying, oh, good or warm, good or warm. He said later, <laughs> he said later, he said it was the... It looked like a, an LSD freakout. He'd never seen anything like it anyway. But then I, I, I was raised to my feet and my body started to form all sorts of classical dance positions. Again, not, nothing of me in this. It took me and moved me. It wasn't as though I was going with it like psychodrama and getting the feeling and sort of tuning it. No, Michael took me, did the whole thing for me. And then from that day, 
well, for the next 25, 30 years or perhaps forever, if ever I gave, gave over to it, manifestations would begin. Uh, there was even speaking in, in, in unknown languages. There were moments of, 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 of peace and stillness, tremendous strength causing through my body, the seeing of lights, blue lights, white lights, a uh, couple of journeys out of the body, uh, hatha yoga-like postures spontaneously and gymnastically executed with no contribution from me whatsoever, a lot of spontaneous pranayama. And, and this, the, the, I, I was a particular person who had a dramatic awakening. I would say that 80% of people who came to Muktananda, perhaps 75, would have some paranormal experience enough to make them sit up and listen and think, say, oh, well, what was that? This is cool. But I had a particularly uh, powerful awakening. Now, I must say that at this time, Richard, I, I was in the ashram. It was a rigorous daily routine, monastic type of thing. You could be something like they were doing in the 11th century in a Benedictine monastery up at the crack of dawn. Uh, an hour giving over to the awakening, saying the mantra, Soham, which means he I am. Uh, then chanting of the Guru, uh, Bhagavad Gita and the Guru Gita early in the morning for an hour and a half and then devotional service in the gardens of the ashram. Then more chanting, more meditation. It was a, a long daily routine that went till nine o'clock at night, seven days a week. Now, oh, that was a, didn't appeal to me much at that stage. I, I, I couldn't really get into the whole Hindu idea, the, 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 the statues painted in Play-Doh colors, all the religiosity of it was a bit uncool for me. But what really gripped my attention, what engaged me and fixed me in this thing, were these spiritual experiences I was having. But the interesting thing was that uh, they weren't changing me. They were having no transformative effect. I was the same schmuck, if you like, with the limitations that I'd come to have overcome, of temperament and character and discipline and every other thing that I'd hoped would be part of who I was. But nothing had changed in that respect. But it was interesting, and uh, undoubtedly there was an intelligence working within me. So this... This goes on for years now of your life of discipline, practice, involvement of Muktadanda. Um, I think I've got a pretty good general knowledge of Indian gurus, but uh, I can't name one that you didn't meet, I don't think, in this period. And Stort, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. You, you were roommates with um, Osho. Ranji Osho for a while. You met Douglas Harding in England. and Oh, yes. Um, Spent time in his house with him. Was there a... I mean, I could go into any of these things. For yeah, an yeah. hour, right? So I'm, I'm trying to focus on on your journey, and it's it's hard to edit out, yeah, because there's so much interesting stuff to talk about. But mm -hmm. was there a process of uh, disillusionment set in over this time, with the absence of these experiences being transformative? Uh, that word would be too strong. Mm -hmm. Disillusionment. Uh, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> How is it that I can be having all these experiences and there could be no really change in the quality and texture of my life, my functional existence? No bearing whatsoever. Of course, as time went on, I matured, I had more life experience, I grew up a little, as most people did. And of course, some people attested to uh, changes. 
But after quite some time, even having a very broad and deep experiences of a lot of the personal development programs of the world and teaching them around the world, uh, yet there was not that change or transformation. But I always saw a distinction between a, a, a personal interior transformation and a shift in lifestyle or beliefs. Uh, that's relatively superficial, you see. So, so I, I never took that as what I was looking for. And you went more and, into the personal development world at some point. Very much so, yes. I did a lot of... You see, after I left that six months, five and a half months at the ashram in 69, I went back to the West, invited Muktananda to the country, and those practices remained with me for many years. But I was constantly looking for what would make the difference. Mm. So I did uh, a forum, uh, Esther, uh, what do you call it, uh, Silver Mind Control, all of them slightly more expensive programs of the day. Then I ended up as an avatar teacher around the world, probably one of the most, more successful ones. Then finally, I, I was through a, a revelation that was given to me, I, I developed the decision principle training, which I taught in uh, France, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, Canada. And uh, that was remarkable. I knew about the, the power of decision as being the first principle. There's nothing much but the consequences of the decisions we make. But still, I was pursuing, so, so I wasn't disillusioned with what I'd been exposed to. I was actually grateful for it. I found it interesting and engaging, and I remained in hope. In fact, I finally, after 28 years, uh, Richard, I put together a complete reality training that I thought that by applying it, we could really still break through the gates of heaven. Yet I haven't hadn't to this point seen a hint of personal transformation. Well, did you see other transformative or positive effects to doing these training programs, and particularly your own training program, and then mm. training other people in it? Did you see mm. positive effects coming about in in their lives? I, I did. Um, the more positive effects were coming from things like the decision principle training, people making sound integrative decisions and getting clearer, perhaps sometimes for the first time, about what they wanted to do with their life based on what excited, motivated and attracted them. Uh, that, that was helpful to them in a very functional, practical way. Uh, but a feature of these things, these personal development strategies, was that Often you'd get a glimpse of something, there'd be a, a rise of hope, uh, a, a temporary change of, of experience, of even interior feeling. But there was usually a, an early leak back to the old familiar self. In other words, none of this was sustainable. That's a fundamental point. Ephemeral, passing, not sustainable. And of course... Uh, I, I believe this was the case with everyone that I'd walked shoulder to shoulder with for, for, for 30 years, you see. Yeah, the promises were not ever realized. Never. So there were promises of enlightenment. I, I, I think I recall reading. Oh, well, I think I think most people I think most people gave up on that idea after five or six right. years. You yeah. know, I, yeah. that's a pretty big, big fat one. But, you know, at least something measurable, something altogether gratifying and sustainable yeah. so okay 28 years have elapsed now and yes just talk through where you're at you're giving it this one last push and then a totally different and unexpected experience 
arises. That's right. So the last push was okay. I'm up at two and a half for two and a half hours every morning in Melbourne, Australia, doing uh, uh, spontaneous meditation, the use of the mantra, chanting the Guru Gita. Other people were joining me, a few of them very early at the crack of dawn. I really was pushing this now. And then I went, then I decided there's one thing I had not done, and that is go into isolation. So I decided to warm myself up, if you like, for 10 days, seeing no one, speaking to no one, talking to no one. And on one of these, one of these two retreats, if you like, an extraordinary thing happened. Uh, this day, it was important to say that I was in a completely plain state of mind as I'm talking to you now. No meditation, no entrancement, nothing like that. And I was just getting ready to settle myself onto a couch. And all of a sudden, the image of Jesus Christ formed up inside my chest cavity. And with the image, simultaneously, came the conviction of who it was. But within one second of that, there was an experience beyond all words can tell. And if I can step it down into the poverty of language, there was an openness and love coming from Christ to me of cosmic proportions and an invitation and a welcome as if to say, give me your life and breath and I'll take care of you. Whoa, that was equal to the most remarkable experience I've ever had as I had, you know, remarkable as the one I had way back there as an 18 year old. But it was utterly personal, utterly real. And the invitation was unmistakable. The words love and openness that came from Christ to me, a pallid word, weak, but they are an accurate pointing at least. Yeah. But I was thrilled and delighted, but I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, Did you know how to I was interpret it even at the time? I mean, because Jesus is interpreted in very different contexts between, let's say, in Hinduism to in Western Christianity in forms of it. So when you say there was a conviction of who it was, did you get the sense this is the Jesus of history, the the Son of God, uh, as the Christians describe him, as opposed to the mask of God, an avatar, the way he might be described in Hinduism? Was this oh, well, that's an interesting experience that it, poured you into an interpretation? Interesting question. No one's ever asked me that question before. Uh, you remember I got the three bears of Christianity as a kid. I, I was at boarding school for 10 years, 15 minutes of chapel, every morning uh, <laughs> one and a half hours of church starched collar church on sundays it was very poorly taught i never got it um, yeah, it talked about jesus the cross and i'd never really understood it well uh, and this was but i was a cool yogi i, I got out of a really cool track you know the, the, the churchianity church thing well yeah yeah that's good for the people that's nice and sweet but that's not my cup of tea so when jesus turned up um I wasn't thinking of him as the the biblical figure, though, uh, of course, you know, what other figure have we heard about but from the Bible? Uh, I wasn't thinking, of course, I would have looked toward Jesus all those years in no special way, though I did love reading about the Christian mystics. But Jesus had been in the past some, something of a flat line to me. Mm. And interesting. So, so uh, I would have considered it considered him another great being the point was is that 
the immediacy and the power and the strength of that experience is overshadowed, outshone any considerations or reflections I may have of which Jesus is this. It was just Jesus Christ, alive and active today, came to me. End of question. But, of course, then it led to, uh, well, I wouldn't have even considered becoming a Christian because I was cool. I was still... <laughs> <laughs> I was still very uh, happy about the Hindu idea, particularly much more so than the Buddhist idea, which I wasn't attracted to. Uh, Kashmir Shaivism, Vedanta, meditation, chanting, uh, this awakening that I come uh, to come through Muktananda, these are all marvelous things. And uh, but I did so I didn't know what to how to respond, but. You see, then I went to America. I continued to do the practices I was doing from the Eastern spiritual tradition. And a second event took place about a year later. I was on the cusp of Berkeley in Oakland, California. I'd gone there to run introductory program to this complete reality training I'd uh, created. And uh, something happened over a three day period as if pushed into me from outside myself, which is extraordinary, yes. came the conviction that everything I had done, the thousands of hours of meditation, the cognitions, the realizations, the remarkable spiritual experiences, regards personal transformation at least, had all added up to a huge fat zero. I was sort of radically sobered. I thought, whoa, you know. I wasn't dismayed. I just thought, oh, this is extraordinary. So basically, I thought, well, I'll just come become a plum ordinary person, live out my span and do what I can. So what got me drawn in again was uh, I was driving uh, from Oakland to Marin County, California, uh, near San Francisco, looking for a place to stay or live. And I kept catching these evangelical preachers on the radio. Now, they were good talkers, yeah. very good speakers. And, uh, and look, I was an open sort of guy. I wasn't uptight. You know, okay. Five great traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam. Hey, I'm open. Listen, tell me, tell me. I had a huge library, I was very open, interested, but I'd never heard this biblical stuff before, taught like this, in this manner, um, these conservative uh, evangelicals, if you like, and, and evangelicalism, if anything was the crazy form of Christianity, that would have been it, but I, I was, I started to change my mind as I listened to these people, not 10, 20 minutes, not half an hour, but probably 150 hours over three months without any contact with any Christians. Um, I started to, I began to see the similarities, if you like, between Christianity as enunciated in the Bible and the New Testament and elements of the Eastern spiritual tradition. But then it was the differences that got my attention. And in the midst of all this, I couldn't forget that Jesus had come to me and invited me and embraced me, if you like. And then I started to become fascinated with his promises. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I thought that was a bit rich. But I uh, come to me, all those who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the 
the beginning and end, the first and the last. Uh, I've come that you may have life and more abundantly. Whoa, 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 wait. You know, this is pretty extraordinary. These are extravagant promises. And after all, I'd explored so broadly and deeply for so many years, turned over every stone, drilled down to the so many, at the bottom of these things was a lot of discipline. And I'd received this grace, this dynamic working within me. And uh, I wasn't a dilettante, hopping from lily pad to lily pad. Yeah. <laughs> I'd gone for it, and I thought, well, I've tried everything in the book. And now I was well acquainted with the first principles of Christianity, as enunciated in the New Testament, and the really proper understanding of that, the core of the gospel, the good news, if you like. And I thought, well, I'm going to tip in here. And um, I saw a big, a big billboard. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it said, but it said Billy Graham was coming to town, and of course. The only my generation, not not yours, a young fella, we've all we'd all heard about Billy Graham, Christian or non-Christian. We knew that this guy pulled the crowd. I think he had 130,000 oh, yeah. people in Melbourne in '59, and I knew one thing about this fellow. He's just recently died, of course, yeah. is that he invited people to decide for Christ. And I, of course, I, this was my thing. I, I taught the decision principle training around the world, so this is perfect. Because I thought I'm going, to, I, I'm going to turn to Christ, so I went there with a view to making a marker of this day. I didn't go there to listen to Billy Graham because I'd listened to the creme de la creme of these preachers across the, the breadth of it. I went there; twenty-two thousand people had assembled, and I wanted to remember it. And I, I came forward when he invited everyone down. I was down there like a shot out of a gun, right up the front. And when he, this, when he. Uh, um, invited people to decide for Christ, I made the decision, surely, definitely, no turning back. Clunk. <laughs> and from that moment, I was never the same again. Now, it was silent. It was undramatic. There was no falling down, black smoke coming out of my ears, nothing like that. I just thought, oh, wow. And I, I looked to describe to myself what this was. And, you know, I've heard about this born again thing. I thought, wow, that seems to be true. I'd known a couple of born again Christians. They were nice people, but I thought it was a bit strange what they'd been involved in and what they believed. Not unintelligent people either, interestingly enough. Uh, but this came with new meaning and purpose. Very interesting. And above all... It came with a new, a change of heart and mind uh, that I had reached for for all these years, and it came all dependent, uh, completely dependently, independently of my practices, disciplines, or struggles. It came as a free gift of grace, which was remarkable. And what do I mean by that? Well, there was a slow but measurable but undramatic change in my temperament, my character, and my disposition. It all came through Christ and not of myself. And uh, it also came with, and I struggled to find the right words for it. An I found the words existential rest. Sounds a bit fancy. <laughs> a better description than just mere peace. Well, I knew what peace was. Sometimes I, I had some ineffable peace in meditation, not a lot, but generally speaking, I could, I could access it. It wasn't that. And maybe St. Paul said, a peace that passes all understanding. It was a good way of putting it, because I couldn't really understand what it was. But somehow the seeker had 
the seeking had come to an end and I'd come to rest in Christ. And actually, he, he mentioned, I think, in the Bible, uh, you will enter my rest. And there it was. You know, I understood what that meant. And it came through grace alone, through faith and confidence alone in the person of Christ alone. So, so this was a new walk for me, a new experience altogether. I was uh, enthusiastic about what I'd been given and exceedingly grateful and probably the most con uh, the most uh, surprised convert in Christendom. So that, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. And, of course, there were much further developments and reflections since then. Sure, yeah, I'd like to ask you about them. Um, but the first thing that, that comes through there is you're describing a transformative experience or a, transform mm -hmm. a, a transformation in character and temperament through becoming a Christian that you didn't mm. experience through mm. anything transformational process-wise, Eastern sure. spirituality-wise. Sure. And I wonder, could you pinpoint what that is, what, what on a psychological level is going on that's mm. causing that? Or do you think it can be pinpointed on a psychological level, or is there something transcendent about well, it, about well, the relationship with Jesus? Well, I think the source of it can be pinpointed, and it comes of actually placing one's faith, trust in the person of Christ is alive and active in the lives of millions of people today. He'd be showing up. To, I never say you expect him to show up to you as he showed up to me because it would have taken a, a slap across the head with a 4B2 to wake me up because I was so well entrenched otherwise, you see. But um, yes, I believe uh, here's the source of that. The Holy Spirit is the source of that. Uh, are you asking for an elaboration of what I mean by a change? I suppose, I suppose what's intriguing me is the, like, the, the concept of existential rest is intriguing yes. me, okay because when you say that a comparison to my own experience arises in my mind so for several years as mm -hmm. a young man i fervently pursued enlightenment and my every waking moment was a, a oh, meditation exercise yeah, yeah, yeah. with the idea that one day it would go snap okay and yeah, yeah. Be <laughs> into an awakening experience which i tasted in my teenage years and I reflect back on that period now and think, yeah, that was insane. Like, what was I doing? What was I thinking? And um, Interesting. Wow, 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 wow. You know, so, but where, where it came to an end for me, I believe it was being, the underpinning of it was being taken away and taken away by experiences, uh, by disillusionment, by the, the absence of transformation, by mm. the feeling that I'd, um, I'd changed in some ways, but probably I'd just replaced all my worldly problems with this one big problem of, getting this enlightenment thing got it oh yes and also there was a, a there was an improvement in my well-being but when it finally went snap i was actually looking at some don't ask me why but i was looking at some art on the internet and a, a picture of jesus came up and it was christ with this crown on, i've never found the name of the piece but he has a crown on his head and this big glowing circle of light behind him and I was struck by this thought. I just had a very nice weekend away with friends, um, and it was, it was. I felt like okay, I could all, like almost like I was going to slip into this enlightenment place, and then it didn't happen. And, mm -hmm. and then the thought arose within me. I, I was really struck by the beauty of the image, and the thought arose within me: if life is this good, why would anyone need enlightenment? Why would I need enlightenment? Yes, yes. It just. I, I fell to the floor. It, it doesn't exist. Right, mm. it doesn't exist. It's it's an, it's an illusion. It's 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 not that 
beautiful, tranquil state of being don't exist. But the mm. idea that you flick a switch and you go there permanently and it's something you attain, all that Abs fell away. But for me, I'd studied a bit of Gnosticism and I was aware of concepts of um, Jungian archetypes and the idea of masks mm -hmm. of God. So it never occurred to me to interpret this as the Jesus of history. To me, it was divinity appearing in a certain form. And I mm -hmm. would have said, oh, it could have been Krishna. I, I, now I don't mm -hmm. have the same felt sense of Krishna as I do for Jesus, because either it's a cultural thing. Maybe you could say it's something more than that, but I don't, I don't relate to Krishna as a, a spiritual right. image, right? I do relate far more to Jesus from my Sunday school years. Jesus has been this ever-present figure. So, right. and I think in the years that went by, I kind of, I almost forgot the role that piece of art played in it because it didn't seem like the central thing to me. And then it wasn't until I read your book and your experience, I thought, well, yeah, I ne it never occurred to me there was a choice in how I interpreted that experience. Okay. Um, so that, but it, it's that, that sense, and I found others expressing it. I find it a bit in the writings of Alan Watts. There's an English non-dual teacher called Tony Parsons, uh, who went into this a lot of, of letting go of this quest to be somewhere you're not and coming to mm -hmm. a, what I would think of as an existential rest and a beauty and a peacefulness and a transformation that arises from that. Right. Okay, so I've seen this be something that's arisen in the non-dual world out of a disillusionment with the quest to always be somewhere else, the quest to always mm -hmm. get this enlightenment thing. And it's right. where it becomes a different form of materialism almost. You're trying to mm. fill a hole inside through a spiritual experience now. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm, I'm wondering about the comparison to really. Right. Well, interestingly enough, I didn't go down the Gnostic idea uh, providentially, I was spooned up the, the biblical form of things. Uh, I originally came in on the promises of Christ. Of course, it was much later that I realized that uh, in his crucifixion, he took upon himself the entire sin or karmic debt of the world that no ordinary guru could do. I, I, I came to believe that he wasn't a mere avatar or, or, or a yogi who attained realization or enlightenment but he began that way came from the source if you like into this world to uh, bring us to salvation so so the, the, the biblical view was rather more attractive to me and not only that I, I prior to to, to uh, appreciating that view which is somewhat surprising to me looking back um, I, I had looked into the history of Gnosticism I had looked into the, uh, the more solid history of the Bible and the, the canon as it was established, not in 323 or whenever they say it was at, at the Council of Nicaea, but well before that with the moratorium document, it was the, the four basic um, Gospels that, that, that were read and hope, most of the hope was placed in that amongst the, the gatherings of Jesus' people in the first century and not so much the much later Gnostic Gospels like the, like the Gospel of Thomas, of course, that uh, was only touted to arrive at about 180 AD, whereas the other four Gospels began sort of 35 AD, uh, 64 AD, the latest one, 90, about 40, 50 years after Jesus died, which was the Gospel of John, very early accounts. And then, of course, there were, uh, 
I, whose names I can't remember, but the, they were railing against the, 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 the what they would have said were the aberrant Gnostic Gospels, which were uh, had some strange ideas. Irenaeus and Tertullian and the Church. Irenaeus, there it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, he, he was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So it was a very close connection between the, the, the Apostle John and and Irenaeus, who, who was, I think, a disciple of, of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So it wasn't sort of some remote disconnect that these people have a, a pretty solid line of information. So, I mean, that that made more uh, substantial the, the, the conviction that, that the biblical accounts are the best ones. Uh, but, but I've never been a very religious person in that sense. Uh, though I have gone to church, though, though I've enjoyed good teaching and preaching from the Bible, though I've read the whole document, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New, and realized that it was a very much a progressive revelation with its finality coming, with the coming of Christ, the expected Messiah who could once and for all salvage us or, or save us, uh, beginning the process in this life and particularly at the point of death, plucking us out of uh, eternal unsatisfactoriness and the notions of reincarnation. Now, one thing I'd like to mention vis-a-vis -vis all this, of course, is that um, it's very interesting. The Buddha, as we understand from the Pali Canon, said, uh, I can do nothing for you. Here's the Dharma, the understanding, the practices, the way. Go work out your own enlightenment. Whereas Jesus Christ said the very opposite, which was pretty much confirmed in my own experience. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Of yourself you can do nothing. Nothing. You don't have to look the word up in the dictionary. It means nothing. It's all of him and none of you. It doesn't mean you have to abandon yourself or, or disappear or dissolve or go to Nirvana, blow it or anything like that. But of yourself, you can do nothing. And everything that I've received in terms of rest, in, ter in terms of new meaning, new purpose, changes of heart and mind came through grace alone. And not having anything to do with what I could possibly do myself. Which is an interesting difference. When you say purpose, okay, I'd like to ask mm. you about that. And Yes. I, I hear from a lot of people, and I think I concur with this, that they feel that the... Um, the Eastern and, Western, Eastern and Western religions speak to the deficiencies in each other. So some people would say that, and I, I, I would be amongst these, that the Eastern religions have um, have held on to their mysticism, okay, in a way that Christianity, uh, perhaps Islam, has not. Yes. But I think a lot of Westerners who go to the East then start to value Christianity in a new way too, for its more outward-looking kind of charitable aspect charitable aspects for example I'm, i just heard on a on a radio show the other day the uh, scientist rupert sheldrake who became it was a, oh i know i met him yeah yeah okay so he he told a story that i think may have sums this up of when he was working in india uh, as a biologist working on agriculture uh, a colleague an indian colleague asked him what motivated him to do his job and sheldrake said well it's um i want to develop new forms of agriculture so we can produce food more abundantly so we can feed all the mm -hmm. poor people in countries like this and mm -hmm. and Sheldrake was very interested in eastern spirituality at the time and he said to the Indian um colleague is that why you do this and the Indian said no it's, it's a good job that's why I do it it's mm. poor people it's their karma right that's mm. 
that's nothing to do with me. And he just mm -hmm. didn't have that sense. And Sheldrake said in that moment, he realized how profoundly Christian he was, even though he had mm. an interest in Eastern spirituality. Oh, interesting. So I, I wonder how, how you found um, a difference in, say, purpose or how your sense of what the meaning of life, what we're here to do, changed after becoming a Christian. It's no okay. longer about this quest for enlightenment, right? So what is I've it? Got it. I've, I've got it. I've got it. Well, first of all, let me say that the I find that the the Eastern spiritual tradition is life negative. Christianity is, is life affirmative. It's very affirmative. It affirms the reality of this world, not that it's an illusion, mm. as the uh, something to be looked at, somewhat askance at. Uh, it's not simply a play of consciousness, as the Shaivites would say, Vedanta's an illusion, but it's real, you know. And it, 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 it's the work of God that it's been created. And it's the work of God that we're here for a purpose. And uh, interestingly enough, that, that it's, it, it's, it began with um, Constantine, actually, with, with his conversion, with, it, with the sentiments of, of, of his life. Uh, the idea of universal education, the idea of hospitals, the idea of this, the, the charitable spirit between mankind helping in every possible way. Then it got a terrific boost in the Re Reformation in the 1500s. Nothing like this has happened in Asia. Hmm. Uh, in a sense, I don't mean to be uncharitable, but because in a sense, and I've lived in India, I know, and I didn't live in an ashram bubble for just a few years. I, I've lived there for nine years on the outside of the bubble. And, and India is sort of somewhat a sociopathic nation. Of course, we're wonderful Indians and good stuff. But a lot of the, the, the charitable spirit that's going on is an all an unconscious aping of that which Christianity brought to this world of caring for people in every way possible. So uh, as to purpose, most specifically, um, let me put it this way. Jesus came to this world and he came to shake people, to wake them up and say, don't you realize who I am, why I've come, particularly to the Pharisees who did not accept him as being who he was. I've come to give you salvation. I've come to save you from eternal separation from Godhead. It was not like, you know, the, well, the Buddha, for example, and maybe Shankaracharya and Ramanuja, whatever, they said, if you don't get out of the mess in this lifetime, you're going to circle around as long as it takes a dove to carry a silk scarf the length and breadth of the Himalayas and wear it down to nothing. In other words, you're in a dire situation. All the great beings have said that. But in the Eastern spiritual tradition, it's very much relying on your assiduous application of the Dharma. Mm -hmm. Whereas Christ is saying, you can't do this. Abide in me. Have you placed your complete faith and trust in me, the person of Christ? And I will salvage you. I will take you from the moment. I will begin a new, I will enter you in this life and start to change you in this life. But of course, you know, I must add here that after you become a Christian, life doesn't become beer and skittles or a bed, a bed of roses. Life goes on. I get salt water up my nose, you know. It, I'm a normal human being. But I have this wonderful added ingredient of the Christ within, if you like. So, so fundamentally uh, different quality when you, when you awaken in the morning now, the thing that pulls you to get out of bed, do you feel it's fundamentally different? <laughs> I, I have to laugh because when I wake up in the morning, sometimes I don't feel so great. I go to the gym, I feel better after that. <laughs> But, but, but um, 
there's something either rather more at the forefront or in the background, which is this rest and this confidence, this now having been with Christ, Christ is with me, that is of immeasurable value, yet I remain altogether human in the sense that everyone would understand. So that's important. Um, but um, Christ said an interesting thing. It was with a group of people. It's, John recounts it. He said, no, uh, 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 give all your attention to receiving eternal life that I, the Son of Man, can give you. Why he said the Son of Man and sometimes the Son of God because he was born of man, but born of God. He was both fully man and fully God simultaneously. He said, uh, this, is, this is the reason the Father has sent me. And then the people asked a very intelligent question. They said to him, what then is the work of God? And Jesus gave a very simple and very um, interesting answer. He said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. And that's pretty simple, no? Just place your faith and confidence and hope in the person of Christ. And if you're going to distill everything down to the simplest and most potent relationship you can have in this world, is that that faith and confidence in the person of Christ who is alive and active today. If only you would give yourself to him. And you've got all the other peripheral things, the church, the Bible, which is very good. It's an inspired and helpful word. And the company of those people who hold to the same view, all these things are important. So my purpose, to get back to your original question, is to advocate, to be enthusiastic about, to share the name and purposes of Jesus Christ, that others may enjoy what I have enjoyed in coming into full relationship with him. And the, the word enthusiasm is interesting. It comes from through two Greek words, enthea, which means to be filled with God. And I'm a natural enthusiast, you know. When I went to the gym as a kid, everyone followed. When I find a good restaurant, I'll tell my friends and they'll go there and I'm a, I'm a bit of a missionary now. I, I'm just enthusiastic for Christ and I share as lovingly and as adroitly as I possibly can why here he is right under your nose, give yourself to him and find your life through this, through him, through grace. That's, so that's my that's purpose, primary purpose. It's a wonderful answer and it, it almost feels like a great point to finish on, but I, I can't resist. Um, I, there's an, another question I want to ask. It's kind of, it's kind of two questions really. Fine, yeah. You've made, um, from that initial experience of Jesus, you've made various decisions about theology then. So, for example, um, you became a Protestant and not a Catholic, okay? Yes, I did. More than that, you became, <laughs> I'm assuming, a certain kind of Protestant and not a certain other kind of Protestant. Yes, yes, yes. You've made theological choices. And mm. some of the theology in Christianity is very difficult for people, okay? Doctrines around hellfire for example okay i think a lot of the people who don't know in eastern spirituality uh, would find that difficult i also know a lot of people i've met in non-dual groups who were christians as children and that's what they've got away from they've got away from the the fear of hell and mm. hanging mm. over them so i'm curious to know that i'm curious to know are there theological questions you struggle with in Christianity, just as there may be questions you had when you were in the Eastern spiritualities, are there now questions that go through your mind that you're you're not quite sure about? Is there a sense of mystery within 
um, the Christian faith view too. And I'm also very drawn to ask, what do you now make of the kind of spiritual exploration or inner exploration of our consciousness from a Christian perspective? Do you think that the Christian mystics were kosher? Because that's an opinion that really is divided within the church. So I've kind of given you two okay. questions there, Michael. Well, well you know, you've got two, que two, two, two questions. Uh, okay. Um, no, no, they're, they're, they're very good questions. Uh, it's not a huge mystery. Uh, I have, the, 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 there's small mystery on the peripheral of things, periphery of things, but but uh, uh, grappling with ideas of hell, hellfire, and all of this sort of thing, and, and heaven, and what exactly is that? And of course, the, the Buddhists and the Hindus talk about the, the different heavens and hells. Mm. But but I, I've come a long way in 20 years as a Christian. I've studied comprehensively, exhaustively it's across the full spectrum of Christianity. Uh, not a lot of Catholicism because um, they've added a lot of things to, to the... I mean, Martin Luther was, was a very interesting guy, cool guy. And he basically in the 1500s said, well, what are you doing? Where'd you get this idea from? That idea, rather idea. Well, we've got to go back to the source materials here. You've got no other, no other basis for this, you know what I mean? So um, the, the idea of hell, for example, um, let me preface this by saying that I've had this very comprehensive experience of the Eastern spiritual tradition, now equally very much so of the Christian way. Uh, I've reflected deeply on these things. I've seen some some, some concomitant factors between the two. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, everyone's spooked about the Christian idea of hellfire and that sort of thing, but the Dalai Lama endorses all, all, all the hells in Buddhism that crushing hell, the hellfire hell, the hot hell. I mean, forget it. I mean, he goes, they go wild on this stuff. The Hindus do too. Mm. So, so don't get, the Buddhism that we hear about is a bit fanciful, you know. The Buddhists and the Hindus. Um, there's something about the eternal separation in Christianity that I think people, well, whatever's there in Hinduism, Buddhism, I don't think that we see eternal separation okay um in them in the same way we see them in christianity no that's what i think is particularly scary in the christian religion right uh, okay well when you talk about eternal uh if it takes a, how long it however long it takes a dove to wear down the lemonade the himalayas with a, with a scarf i mean that's long enough so let's not kid ourselves that the Hindus and the Buddhists, that's tantamount to eternal from human perspective anyway. Mm. So it's a long time. Uh, and of course, indeed, the book of Revelation, and Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. Uh, he also adverted to heaven more than anyone. But it's very important to point out the semantic problem here that the heaven that Jesus Christ talks about is the ultimate reality, God's cr created purpose for us all to abide in in perfection, with every tear wiped from our, our eye in perfect union with him, in, in, in gladness of heart and perfection and, and love, uh, eternally with all its wondrous forms and in all its, it's the, the platform of all eternal possibilities. Whereas the Buddhist and Hindu heaven are sub-realities where you go to heaven for a period of time to exhaust your good karma 
And as soon as you've got all the, the bickies and the good stuff and the, and the loveliness that you've earned through your life, you then fold back into another form of incarnation and start again, if you like. And conversely, you end up hell to, 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 to get rid of all the, the bad karma that you've got. And when that's exhausted, you're off again into another body. So in both schools, we have heaven and hell. The heaven of Christianity is altogether quite different. It's misleading to think it's anything like these other things. And there's a, a permanence, whereas in the other in the other conditions, save for enlightenment, as they believe, there is impermanence in all forms of heaven and hell. But uh, this is one point I would like to make. And um, even though I'm an evangelical, in the sense that I hold to the inspiration of the biblical scripture, uh, I, I reflect deeply on Jesus' teaching, for example, of hell. He lived in, a, in, in, a, in an era and at a time uh, democracy wasn't heard of, if you like, except for 50 or 60 years with the Greeks and that had all passed by then. Um, under an authority, hierarchies of authority. If you'd walked down to the supermarket in Palestine 2,000 years ago, on your way down to the supermarket to get some vegetables, you'd probably see three people crucified on the, on the corner waiting six days to die. There were, it was a shocking era. People understood fear. They were motivated by fear. So Jesus comes along and says, look, don't you realize who I am? So, so using hyperbole as a great teacher, he shook people, stirred them up, and pictured this, this, this uh, tremendous loss that you're going to enjoy if you don't acknowledge me, come to me, and place your confidence in me for the very purpose that I came. So the word, the word for hell was Gehenna. It was a dump uh, outside Jerusalem where they threw all, everything would just burn, burn, burn day and night because it was always supplied with fuel. So that was the main analogy he used. So, um, for example, when the Buddha said that life is suffering, that was his, one of his primary declarations. He wasn't suggesting that he didn't have good days and bad days and that it was agony all the time. He was pointing out that suffering and life suffering beyond death, if you don't become enlightened, was a cycling between the best and the worst and everything in between eternally and an eternal separation, if you like, from the ultimate reality. So um, I think understanding these differences is, is important and not to get stuck in them. I don't know whether I'm, I'm groping, I'm sort of thinking off the top of my head as I'm speaking to you now, but I don't know whether that clarifies anything regards the antipathy some people might have about the idea of eternal separation of this and the horrors of hell, which is not unique to Christianity at all. Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting, uh, the comparisons you've heard of Buddhism and Hinduism then. And it's, mm. It hasn't quite occurred to me in that way. Mm. Um, so yeah, that is that is interesting. I suppose yeah, I was interested in... Um, yeah, that sense, really the question of uh, does Christianity bring up a sense of um, unanswerable questions for you or mystery, you know, regarding like, okay, people who didn't have the opportunity to meet Jesus, say they were born prior to him or born in Australia in the 17th century. Um, th these kind of like just 
very standard questions, really, that are put to Christians all the time. I've, I've been curious as to how you, as someone who came in from outside the faith and with a long tradition um, in another, another spirituality, um, if you feel like very that there are kind of mysteries within Christianity to be unravelled, or um, oh, look, the there definitely are mysteries. Look, and if I maintain my intellectual integrity. I have to say, ultimately, I don't know. Yeah, sure. But I know where I've placed my faith and confidence for yeah. good reason and has borne very good fruit. So here's another interesting thing is that, that mysticism is generic. I mean, whether it's a Hindu mystic, a Sufi mystic, a Christian mystic or a Buddhist mystic, by and large, they're usually experiencing the same thing. And they're giving it a different set of descriptions and labels. And each of that same experience is placed into a different framework of understanding, which accounts for some of the differences. And I do believe that the Christian mystics, which mystic, Christian mysticism has been very much put put to one side these days, their reveries, their, their union with God, Meister Eckhart, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa Revere, all these people, and Miguel, Miguel de Molinos, others, uh, they're not saved by their union with God in mystical reverie. They're saved, salvaged eternally, as distinct from enlightened, by their confidence, faith in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the big difference. So you... Um, what I can really respect, and I don't know, because I think my most common answer to questions of this nature now is I don't know right so that, I think and mm. I don't know is a response that makes perfect sense to me I think um, mm. th there's often an association between Christianity and a kind of negative association and clinging to intellectual truths okay which I think arouses a suspicion um, and I, I'm sure it goes on in the east too so I, I find a, an I don't know makes perfect sense because there's great mysteries in any it would from whatever perspective one looks at the world, there are questions that we can't answer. So that makes sense to me. With, and with regard to the... the I, I uh, no, I, I agree with you. Hmm? I agree with you very much. I agree yeah. with you on, you know, to, 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 to have, you know, the word Latin, the Latin word, word uh, conclusion comes from uh, Claudari, which means to shut. As soon as you shut your mind, have an implacable certainty on everything, uh, it's unhealthy. I mean, the door is shut. There's, there's no no crack for the spirit of God or further understanding to, to creep in. So, so the, the, there are a lot of open questions. But as one as one man said, uh, I quote him in a book I've written called the Practical Book of Modern Day Wisdom. Um, he said every philosopher at some point has to make a decision. Mm. <laughs> Something fundamental. Otherwise, you're just going to float around. The questions are eternal and are never ending. And you'll never come to rest. At some point, you've got to, you know. And I very much appreciate the distinction you're making. Like you sent me a, a paper you've written, Salvation versus Enlightenment. Mm. Okay. And the distinction you're making there with someone like uh, a Christian mystic like Eckhart, okay, mm. that he was exploring the mystical depths of his being and the nature of God mm. and however mm. you would express that. But that's a distinction mm. there between that kind of inner conscious exploration and salvation. Mm. And again, I'd, I'd like to draw a comparison to my own experience there because I, mm. I talked about this, um, this experience of dropping the quest for enlightenment and an experience of feeling that everything was just perfect 
as it is with no need to change anything or mm -hmm. anything to it or get anything mm -hmm. and for a while after that i think i wanted nothing to do with anything mystical i just wanted a break from it because I'd, I'd just done it to death for like right several years before that yeah, yeah, yeah. but over time i became drawn back into it and started to re-explore those conscious steps but in a totally different way um in a way of not attaching meaning to it like my there was no existential meaning that i was acquiring from um what i found within or the need to get something because to, to do so is like a form of materialism I, and i could equally say you know attaching great meaning to a physical fitness program and i'll yeah, be yeah. happy when i attain a certain muscle mass or i'll right, be happy right. when i have a certain salary or a certain wife or position yes. in the world there's that mm -hmm. need to attain something spiritually and Got the, it. so i i really appreciate that um that distinction i, I mean, you might not think i'm i'm making it in the same way uh, but no i agree with eckhart there and, and the other christian mystics that there's really two things going on there's this what we could call salvation and then there's the the quality of, of what we could call the, the the stepping into whether you want to call it enlightenment or not the, the investigation then of consciousness well i'm very much interested in exploring the inner realms of consciousness i've sort of been an amateur consciousness researcher all my life and i'm still interested in that and my primary interest these days sort of being established in my basic faith and confidence in christ and the the, the, the position where I've generally landed regards theology and doctrine. Now my interest is uh, rekindling uh, some of the uh, strategies and, 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 and uh, means and disciplines and practices I have to uh, further explore my own consciousness and hopefully the con uh, with other people. So I believe there's some tremendous uh, ideas and, and techniques that I've observed and discovered that can be applied to the Christian uh, way that make experiential that uh, experiential that which people only believe and hold conceptually because that's, that's that that's that's my avid and very strong interest right now and i'm looking for a few friends with whom i can do that together yeah because i mean you must Such observe that the things, world so. the world has hmm? fundamentally changed in the 20 years since you stepped away from eastern spirituality yeah. Like when I started this, just I think it was just after you got out of it. Um, mm. I, I, there was no one else interested in this kind of thing. Now I gave a talk recently. I was part of a panel giving a talk at a bookshop on mindfulness, and there was forty or fifty people in the audience, right? And then when yeah. I started, you wouldn't have got one. You know, there you are. That, so, and mindfulness has been certainly in 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 the UK has been adopted as uh, in, in psychotherapy now, the NHS offer it, uh, millions of people have read books like Eckhart Tolle's work and this kind of mm -hmm. thing. And it's, it's, you know, Oprah Winfrey has been, whatever you think of these things, whether they're good or bad, the, the culture has shifted. And I think the Christian church is having to come to terms with that and see, okay, is all this stuff, is mindfulness, we don't like necessarily or agree with the, the theological system it's come out of, but is it inherently mm. bad? Is it off the devil? Or is it something that can mm. be put into a Christian context? And mm. the Christian church is going to have to come to terms with these these kind of questions. So, it, yeah, it's fascinating that, that you're doing so yourself. Yes, well, it is coming to terms, isn't it? But you see, I think all these mystical pursuits, uh, these experiments in consciousness, if you like, are uh, germane. But it's helpful to place them in a context of understanding a framework of understanding, if you like, that has some uh, uh, firm basis of some sort. 
and not to go merely the exploratory mystical route, but to, to do it within a context. I do it within the context of faith in the person of Jesus Christ, who I know is alive and active. I do it within the context of the cross of Christ and the implications and significance of his death and resurrection. I do it with the con within the context of sort of a rudimentary understanding of the naked gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's helpful. That's the floor on platform on which yeah. I stand. And then all the other adventures, and they're great adventures. Let's find out. Let's explore. Let's, let's see what we can experience, you know. I love it. That's the juice for me. But not everyone's interested in that. And a lot of the Christian people are not. It's not for anyone, everyone, you know, I mean, some people are, no. are doing wonderful things in completely different ways, in far more worldly ways than mm. I would do, say, you know, running mm. charities or being involved in that kind of work. So it's yes. the, the contemplative path is not uh, for everyone. Um, no. So I think that's good, um, Michael, the, that that end point kind of sums up really a big reason why I wanted to talk to you, because I think it, you're. Mm it's this idea of mysticism or anything we do in life taking place mm. in the context and whether we agree exactly on what that context is mm. i think it just that there has to be a context sure quite a revelation so mm. just to to finish up i'd like just to if there's turn the floor over to you if there's anything else you'd like to say to the probably non-dual audience that are may that are, will be watching this um or in those involved in, you know, sort of contemporary, what was Eastern is now Western and Eastern spirituality. If there's any, any final thoughts you'd like to, to offer the audience, then please go ahead and do so. Okay. non-dual, that's interesting. <laughs> of course, Christianity is dual and Vedanta is non-dual. Uh, Christian paradigm is the, the creator and the creature. There's God and there's us. But in Christianity, we understand we enjoy a perfect union with God, but we do not become God. And my belief and conviction, not conviction, that's too strong a word, but it's probably true, as I, as I write in this story about the reflection of enlightenment versus salvation, is that I believe that what the Vedantin or what the Eastern spiritual aspirant discovers as their enlightenment is they have experienced the image of God within them, but not God it or himself. And in the Bible, it tells us that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And it's very easy to mistake the image for the real thing. So I think if there could be any possible critique of the notion of enlightenment, or the non-dual pursuit, that it is just short of the ultimate reality. And that in, non, in, in, in the highest truth, union with the with infinite source, union with the creator is uh, the ultimate reality rather than identity with a supposed ultimate reality, which is the image of that, but not it itself. I'd say that. But anyway, I would really say that the way of grace is paramount. Uh, not necessarily, uh, I mean, you know, when we talk about non-duality, we're talking about Vedanta most commonly. And there was uh, there was Shankaracharya, uh, Ramanuja, and Madhva. 8th century, 12th century, 15th century, or 16th century. And they did not agree on each other. 
with each other at all. And 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 Madhva and and Ramanuja did not believe that we're God, that we are Parabrahman. He said, no, 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 that's not quite right. So there are some things to look at there. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, Shankaracharya has been the most influential of the Vedantins. He's a preeminent non-dualist. Um, but I think that to, if I was to, one thing to say would be to turn to Christ, turn to the person of Christ with confidence, faith and trust. Continue with your pursuits, continue with your understanding. But as I pointed out to one young wom woman in India, I had shared everything with her about Christ. She had come to receive a transmission from a great Buddhist master. She almost fell off her chair when she found out that I'd been with Muktananda, the most well-renowned transmitter of Shaktipat, if you like. Uh, because she'd heard about him. I told, gave her, her my account of my story, my testimony. Uh, I dealt my full deck. She was mildly interested, but she was still rather committed to the idea of staying in India and finding this Buddhist master that she'd come to spend time with. And my last words to her were this. I said, tonight, when you go to bed, before you fall asleep, Cry out to the person of Jesus Christ keenly, surely, in a fervent and muscular way, as though you really mean it. And ask him, show me, lead me, touch me. And this is what I added. Give him till five o'clock tomorrow morning to do so. I was a little bit ashamed of myself in doing that. I thought that's a bit rich. But I said, take pause in yourself and do just this in an earnest way. I, I walked away thinking, well, I've done the best I can. And that's the end of it. Next day, I found out from someone who'd uh, emailed me, this woman was wandering all over Dharamsala looking for me in earnest. She really had to find me. Where is she? I don't know. Where am I? I don't know where she is. I walked out of this internet cafe and there she was with an amazed look on my face. And she said, last night, Jesus Christ appeared to me in full and glorious form. And he used your words, actually, which you mentioned at the beginning of this interview. He said to her, what you're looking for does not exist. And he said a lot more to her, and I only wished that I'd written it all down. But she was so moved by this encounter that she, she said, I must give up this pursuit altogether. So we walked across the road. It was midnight in, in Las Vegas at the time where her father was. We rang her father. He staggered out of his home at midnight and went into a Western Union office that was open in the middle of the night for some reason, sent her the money. And within 48 hours, she'd got on a bus, gone down to Delhi and flown out of India. And she was determined to now look to the person of Christ as the new possibility for her life. Now, in ending this interview, I'm not going to say that you should be looking for a vision from Christ. I mean, Christ himself said, look, you, you, you've got the word of God. You've got what I've said. Don't look for something amazing. That's enough for you. But all I can say is that in him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge.
And that's the word of that appears in the Bible as described as who he is. I am the first and last. I am the Alpha the Omega, the beginning and end. I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm not just going to show you the way, tell you the truth, or add life to you. I am the very embodiment of those things. This is who I am. Come to me, all those who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest, existential rest. So that's my message. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Richard. All the best. Okay, good, good. <laughs>